This is a big moment, Ray's listeners. That's right. On today's episode, we hosted our first college president, Dan Lugo of Queens University in Charlotte, North Carolina. Dan has a fascinating personal story that is reflective of some of the truly great aspects of higher education. From his humble beginnings as the youngest of four children, Dan is one of the rare advancement leaders who has risen to the highest ranks in our sector. I hope you enjoy learning about his journey. Here we go. Greetings, Ray's audience. I am so thrilled to be hosting Dan Lugo, who is the president of Queens University in Charlotte. This is the first college president that we've hosted on our podcast. Uh, I've had the fortune of getting to know Dan over the years, but I cannot overstate how excited I am to learn more about his journey today. Welcome, Dan. Brent, thank you for having me on. I, I, I didn't know that I was uh, your first college president. It's an honor. Well, I thought if I told you that, then you might be less inclined to accept the invitation. So, uh, you're uh, actually right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, look, I, I want to set a little bit of context for the audience. It is March 26, 2020. We are in the midst of rapid response to the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus situation. Uh, there are few leaders uh, that have had to embrace as much change uh, as college presidents like Dan have. And so we will absolutely uh, come back and touch on that throughout the course uh, of the conversation. I do wanna thank you, Dan, for making time in the midst of, of everything you've been juggling. That being said, uh, I am so excited to, to host you today because you have uh, such a unique background as a college president, having worked in a variety of uh, uh, contexts on campus and off, uh, with uh, with a very interesting background, and, and I'm, I'm excited to dive into that. Why don't we start, though, with um, young Dan Lugo, and could that guy, what was he like, and could he have imagined someday, you know, when you were writing your, your me book when you were 10 years old, what were you writing about in, in that book, where were you, and what were you hoping to to accomplish? Yeah, you're, you're, you're going back in the time machine. And uh, where was I? I'll start with that. Um, so I, I was actually born in the, uh, the Virgin Islands. My mom's side of the family is from the VI, and I was born in Christian Set St. Croix. Um, my, my mom and dad had a bit of wanderlust, and I was the youngest of four. So my uh, older siblings had a much more exotic uh, childhood than I did. But I grew up uh, in a wonderful place out on the south shore of Long Island named Amityville, New York. Uh, went to second grade in Amityville and graduated from Amityville High School, the public school system uh, that served that district. Um, it was an ideal place for me to grow up. It provided me with opportunities to not only get a strong fundamental education, but to be exposed to the arts. I was a string bass player, be exposed to athletics, um, I played uh, three sports at different times. Um, so I had a really, really kind of idyllic uh, childhood. What I didn't have was a lot of um, folks around me with experience of having gone to college um, or to having become professionals. So I'm a first generation college attender and I'm among those four kids, the only one that went to college. Uh, and as a result, I, there was an expectation in my household uh, for, for whatever reason that I was going to go. My parents were, are incredibly brilliant people. They're both still alive, uh, but, but getting up there. Um, but, you know, the expertise of how to do it um, and what careers to do 
you know, so I had those kind of generic career thoughts. So maybe I'd be a doctor. Can I just ask at that point, I also, I'm the oldest of three boys, first generation uh, college student and, uh, you know, share the view. My parents just never had that opportunity, but it was always an expectation. I, I do think it's, it's extra unique that as the youngest of four, you were the one to, to be able to have that opportunity. At what point was that expectation different for you? Yeah, I, I don't know that it was ever different, uh, to be quite honest with you. Um, I think part of being a bit of a, uh, an extracurricular uh, greedy kid, you know, I was always in, involved in the arts at a high level and sports at a competitive level. So I was always looking at, oh, well, what do you do next with those types of things? Uh, and particular sports, you know, I mean, I, I, I was watching, you know, college football. So I, I knew all of those big universities and could envision myself being in the stands or being in, on those campuses. So I don't know that there was ever a, a, a switch. Um, I've always had uh, work has always been a part of my life, too. I think I was in seventh grade when I got my paper out and, and pretty much since being 12 or 13 to now, I've, I've, I've worked, you know, my whole entire life, but never did I think that I would skip going to college versus going directly to work. So I don't, I don't have that kind of light switch moment. Um, it was always an issue of confusion about what does that mean and where do you do that? And so help me understand as you're now navigating high school, sports, the arts, uh, were there certain teachers or counselors or coaches who, who started helping you shape uh, what would ultimately be your college decision? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's spot on. Um, and, in, and in my story, at every interval up until the most recent uh, uh, interval penultimate uh, moment in my career, there have been mentors, there have been people that have uh, either quietly or more strongly in my life, giving me advice. And in high school, um, you know, I, I went to a, a really great community high school uh, where I think socioeconomic challenges uh, were a lot more present than I ever felt when I was a kid. But now when I look back, I kind of get it uh, a lot more. And so the percentage, um, you know, had a major, major uh, a graduation uh, issue. The percentage of students that went to college was low. Um, and there was there was a sense of, um, you know, whatever that cohort that they thought had the potential to go to college, they wanted to ensure that that, that group kind of got there. Um, and, I, and some people that, that I would highlight were, you know, kind of a junior high math teacher that for some reason saw real potential in me. And, and I was a smart kid and, and I could get by doing not a lot of work. Um, at least in that environment, right? That all changed when I got to college, which we can talk about, the, you know, the, the virtual punch in the mouth. Uh, but, but, you know, through high school, I, I could really navigate without, you know, keep staying looking cool, right? Without carrying a lot of books and doing all that stuff. And, and there, were, there were some great teachers, in particular a math teacher named Mr. Edwards that called me on that. And then I would really highlight a teacher named Mr. Schwartzman, uh, who was my orchestra teacher. And uh, candidly, I would say he opened up my life, period. He opened up my life. I, I was a, a violinist uh, in fourth and fifth grade and early junior high. And he said, you know, Dan, you're going to be a big guy. You should be a string bass player. And I said, I don't want to do that. He's like, the girls like string bass player, players, Dan. I said, okay, I'll do that. 
And, and that one decision, you know, allowed me to find an instrument that I would thrive in, allowed me to get into a regional orchestra that in, in all three years of my, my high school experience took me around the world. I took a world tour in Europe and Asia and South America. Wow. And, and I think that literally uh, defined who I would become, defined my curiosity and my thirst uh, to really understand this planet, to understand people and to navigate cultures and difference. Incredible. And so you, uh, you ended up attending Carleton College in Minnesota. Uh, like most people who are born in St. Croix and grow up on Long Island, you, you turned to central Minnesota for, uh, for education. No culture shock whatsoever when you got out there. Uh, actually, massive culture shock. And, uh, and I, 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 I take your, uh, your humor because uh, it, it wasn't a real uh, typical path. Just uh, as a point of context, I grew up in Northeast Iowa, not far from Luther College. So yep. you know, in the same uh, cultural neck of the woods. I understood. And, and, and uh, Decorah and, 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 and that region, I really, really, really love. Uh, and, I, and I love those North Central Plains states. Uh, I, I find myself to be very much an adoptive uh, Minnesotan. But it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't the tried and true path. For, but, I mean, you know, you're you're in Amityville. Nobody nobody knows what Carleton College is, and so how do you go from uh, four or five thousand potential paths for higher education? How did you start narrow, narrowing it down? Was it about the arts or sports or a combination? And how did Carleton find you? Yeah, I so you know now that I've been on the other side and right. I've been a chief enrollment officer, I understand the magic that generated me, and it's actually not magic; it's just great admissions work. Um, uh, Carlton, uh, their basic strategy in the, uh, the 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 80s and 90s was to be the first communicator uh, to uh, top. Uh, whatever students they were looking for around the country based on their kind of PSAT searches. Um, and the first piece of mail that I got in Amityville, Long Island was from Carleton College. I had never heard of the place. I didn't know a thing about Northfield, Minnesota. Um, and the only thing I knew about uh, Minnesota in general was that I was a Rod Carew fan for the Minnesota Twins. And, and the Vikings, you know, had a really good defensive line, you know, at that point in time. So um, it, it really didn't stand out at the start, but because they were first, they became kind of the yardstick by which I measured other communications. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm really somewhat ashamed to say I'm a cautionary tale, even though it worked out. In my college search, I didn't visit a single school. The only college campus that I actually ever spent any time on was CW Post in Long Island, because that's where the Long Island Youth Orchestra used to rehearse. But otherwise, I, I went to Carleton sight unseen, and it was completely because of the quality of their communications wow. and the great admission work that they, they did. I did have a chance to be interviewed by an alumna in New York City and went to kind of a gathering. And, and for some reason, I, I just felt this affinity with the, you know, the more um, humble personality um, they seemed more interested in me uh, and my potential and my future, regardless of whether I went to their school or not, you know, where some of the other gatherings I went to, it was kind of like, oh, how could you turn us down? Of course you want to come with us. Yeah, yeah. And that really stood out. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind me sharing one of my memories, which links back to Minnesota, 
is um, the first school that I got called by from a recruiting perspective on the East Coast was Brown University. Hmm. And I really hadn't heard of Brown. And, and in fact, when they first called and said they were from Brown, I immediately assumed it was the Brown Institute of Technology in Minneapolis because they were doing so much TV advertising in my in my local market. And, and that was kind of my, uh, my first impression uh, as well. So uh, all that being said, you, you moved to Carleton and uh, Brent, I've, I've got a question. So I, I had an experience where, you know, when, when I got into Carleton, I said, Hey, I'm going to Carleton because it had such low name recognition. Yeah. People were like a little disappointed. Like, why didn't you pick X, Y, or Z? Did you have that same experience about Brown in, in Iowa? Well, let me tell you, what really helped counter that potential uh, that potential um, was I graduated, I was a senior in 1999, which is when uh, Varsity Blues was released. And Johnny Moxon, the star quarterback at the end of Varsity Blues, commits to Brown University, which really put it on the map for my, uh, my peer group. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Otherwise, who knows? Um, so... So you you moved to Minnesota. Were the arts or athletics going to be a part of your your collegiate experience as well? Yeah. So the arts continued. I continued to perform uh, and and study string bass uh, at least for the first three years um, um, that I was at Carleton. Um, athletics kind of fell off, um, you know. And and we all have these kind of uh, um, uh, back of the mind uh, list of, of biggest regrets. And, and, and that's on my list. The fact that I, I, I chose not to continue uh, to compete. Um, but, you know, every year that I get past that, it, the regret feels a, a, a little less painful. So I've only got about 20 more years before it's, you know, totally benign for me. Um, What's interesting is that one of my regrets is uh, I, I, I love playing guitar. I, I love singing. And I really regret not uh, trying to do acapella or something in the arts. Instead, I played football. So uh, we can both, uh, you know, share those uh, uh, counterbalancing regrets over the next uh, 20 years for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, Carlton was a good experience for you. Carlton was a challenging experience for me. You know, uh, Amityville uh, High School was a, um, you know, a very, very diverse place. Um, and in fact, it was a school where the majority of the students uh, were African-American. It was probably 60% African-American and 40% uh, white at that time. Um, you know, it, it was a bit of a magic moment in the school, school district where those communities got along really well. Um, and, you know, my understanding is that it wasn't exactly that case years before me. And it's evolved in ways where it continues not to be uh, that case. But I was there in this kind of really magical moment. Um, and, you know, I went to southern Minnesota. I went to Northfield, a uh, great two-college town. Um, and at that time, you know, with fewer than 10% of the students being of all uh, types of domestic ethnic uh, 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 minorities uh, and a very, very small African-American community. And, and I really, even though... I just student, ask, I mean, what was your class size and how many African-Americans were in your class? Gosh, and you know, and I and I'm sorry, I don't know that number um, off of the top of my head, but I think the class sizes were around 400 at yeah. that point in time. So, you know, if you thought that everyone uh, in that class, um, you know, uh, if if 10% of them 
were domestic students of color, that's 40. And if a small percentage of that was African-American, you, you can see how quickly those numbers uh, get very, very small. Um, and being in uh, the great Northern Plains, uh, didn't really have a lot of the comforting surroundings that I was used to. Really beautiful place, really exciting traditions, um, but just different. Um, so really kind of uh, uh, getting used to that new culture uh, was a bit of a challenge and, and all trying to, um, you know, my, my MO was to always make things look like, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm pretty fluid and I'm adapting and I'm cool. Um, so, you know, keeping this, the challenges inward uh, while managing actual real challenges became an even bigger challenge. So I, I would say that, that I had a great, great uh, curricular and academic experience at Carleton, but it became truly my community deep into my junior year where somewhat of a, a, a switch flipped for me where I kind of took ownership for the way that I was engaging with that community. And was I really giving fully of myself? Um, was I really committing to the friendships that I was making there? Was I committing to actually having fun there versus almost self-isolating myself mm -hmm. and putting myself on the periphery of the experience? Um, and, and I think once I reoriented that and, and, and took, put myself at the front of my own narrative, um, it's amazing how many things really opened up for me there. And as a result, Carlton was a very, very much a defining experience. And I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but I, I credit Carlton with kind of, you know, rescuing me on a number, uh, on at least two occasions, right? So the first was bringing me to, to, to Carleton to get the type of immersive liberal arts, great community experience that I had. And the second time, you know, I left a, a profession to get into higher education and went back to my alma mater and started to work there. So um, I, I owe quite a bit to Carleton. Well, I definitely want to learn about that, that part of the journey. You studied political science, and then, which would be a fairly, you know, one of the more common paths, you pursued your JD, um, but you felt connected enough to the great state of Minnesota to, uh, to head up to the Twin Cities and go to the University of Minnesota. Was that a tough decision or, or what kind of led you to say, okay, I, I figured out this whole Midwestern thing. I've, I've really immersed myself and, and, and figured that out midway through the junior year. Let's go all in on, on Minnesota here for, for a few more years. <laughs> I, I think that would, would have been the better movie script, uh, but unfortunately, that's not the reality. Um, when I graduated on that second Saturday in June of 1987, oh, 1991, sorry, uh, 1991, um, and uh, drove home across the country, I thought for sure that Minnesota uh, was in the rearview mirror. I was actually destined um, at that point in time to uh, go to Boston University Law School. Um, and I was going to be rendezvousing with a childhood friend who I grew up with in Amityville to go to that same exact school. Um, I got home uh, uh, to New York City um, and I got a call from an admissions person at the University of Minnesota Law School who said something to the effect of, hey, we haven't heard your response to, you know, our Royal A. Stone scholarship uh, offer that we've been. And I said, you know, I moved out a few weeks ago and I haven't gotten a response. Can you explain what that opportunity is? Um, and the opportunity was, was persuasive enough for me to tell my childhood good friend that, hey, I can't believe I'm abandoning you, but for financial reasons, I'm going to go to the University of Minnesota Law School um, and head back across the country. 
that experience in those three years were really interesting for me. Um, I, I, I really didn't fall in love with, with law school, but I definitely fell in love with uh, the university, the state. From that perspective, I saw a slice of the Midwest um, in Minneapolis and St. Paul and the Twin Cities that, that really resonated with me. Um, and, you know, one of the challenges of being a first-generation college tender is you become a first-generation college graduate. You become a first-generation person to go to graduate school. You know, so you, you continue not to have those types of peer influences to uh, really communicate about what you're observing and getting good advice about what to do next. And so I, I, I really wasn't the biggest fan of law school, um, but you know I'm, I'm a pretty stick to it, um, stubborn guy, and uh, um, I, you know not only got through those three years of law school, but you know managed to to, to take on uh, uh, internships and clerkships and and started working you know for for a law firm during my 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 uh, third year at law school. Um, and never really paying attention to the, the ways that it actually wasn't fundamentally resonating uh, with my values, with the things that I wanted to do with my life and with my strengths, but really just kind of plowing forward. Can I just ask, I mean, it's a little bit personal, but how much pressure did you feel to just need to make money? I mean, just given the reality, obviously, it sounds like with Minnesota, you had a, a you know, another great enrollment experience where they, they, they really fought for you as a student. And, um, and at the same time, when you think about, I don't know, the, the pursuit of your, your values um, juxtaposed with just a need as a first gen, you know, student to, to make money. I mean, did you feel that pressure? Yeah. I, you know, I, and I still do, to be quite honest with you, this is, um, you know, the pressure to build um, a career pathway that that addressed uh, um, my my own financial insecurity, um, the financial insecurity of of of, of uh, you know my family and and parents. That was kind of always present for me in yeah. all of the decisions that I made. How do I one not be a burden uh, and not require significant uh, family investment? Um, and two, how do I put myself on a pathway where I can be a revenue source for the people that I love? Um, you know, that, that, that's been present with me forever, forever, and, and continues to be. That's uh, just, just a part of uh, the definition of, of, of what makes me tick. Um, so there, that, I think, was part of the stubbornness of, of, of no, because if, you, if, you, if I stepped off of the path, you know, because I wasn't enjoying law school, then you get into, you know, something that just really uh, I couldn't define of how could I, you know, ensure that I wouldn't be a burden and how can I, just, you know, also ensure that I that it, in at least in a couple of years, I'd be a net contributor um, to the to the family and community that I love. I feel that for sure. And um, that being said, you did go down the the path to become an attorney and you did, it at least looks like, weave in some of your interest in the arts and music into that work. Um, tell me more about your time as an entertainment lawyer in Manhattan, right? And Correct. specifically, I want to know some of the 
favorite memories you have, some of the people you interacted with during that time that maybe still stand out? Oh, here we go. Here we go. So um, I would say that it started out to be really an entertainment and sports attorney. Um, okay. I, I, I reconnected uh, uh, with the, um, uh, my, my childhood friend who did go to BU Law School and graduated, and I went to University of Minnesota Law School. And, you know, we, we grew up in the arts together. Um, I, I mentioned, you know, my passion for athletics. Um, I had the good fortune of, of growing up with a couple people that ended up having careers in the arts. Um, as well as who ended up uh, playing some pro sports. So I grew up with a guy named Rob Carpenter, who was a co-captain on our football team, who went to Syracuse as a great wide receiver over there and became, you know, he was drafted by the, the Bengals, played for the Patriots, played for the Jets. Um, I grew up with, you know, the guys in De La Soul, for anyone from our generation, remember kind of those guys who, who by the way, are still, still out there, still performing. Um, and so I thought, you know, that I had gateways into those professional communities. And so um, how do I uh, feed a little bit of my passion for those areas by staying adjacent to them, perhaps providing legal services and agency services? I, to be quite honest with you, I actually love talking about failures because um, when I talk in particular to all students and, and most definitely first-generation students, they feel like they need to keep stacking these perfect boxes on top of each other. And if the box isn't perfect, oh my gosh, you know, I'm off the path. I, and I think I thought that way too. But the reality of our lives is that we just keep failing and failing and the smart and tough people just keep getting up to fail again. And that's, that's really the definition of how you become successful. So I actually started out with a deeper emphasis in sports, um, did pick up a few clients as a certified uh, National Basketball Players Association rep as an NFL Players Association rep. Um, and I'm telling you, those were some painful moments when you're sitting there with the starting safety for LSU who led the team in tackles and he doesn't get his name called and you're there with his whole family, <laughs> you know, on draft day. You so know? you're that guy, if there is a draft or the next time we watch the draft, they zoom in on the player's face, you're the guy right next to that person. <laughs> Exactly. Was this like you know, ballers, ballers before it was a thing, kind of? I mean, you is know, that you uh, uh, entertaining show, good, good show to watch when on the elliptical or something like that keeps yeah. keeps you driving there. Um, but you know, there's there's um, there's a maybe, lot of maybe maybe uh, was there a little Jerry Maguire? Maybe that's a better uh, yeah. You know, Jerry Maguire was successful in, until he wrote that memo, right? right? So I actually never had the joy of becoming successful. I I had you know. One of my most memorable moments is uh, having a, a really talented seven foot one player uh, who had been playing overseas and everyone was excited to come back and setting up a, a, a workout in Chicago uh, right around the Moody Bible Institute where they used to do the uh, NBA uh, uh, draft camps uh, and having quite a good show of folks in the general manager and scouting community come over for having and then have my client not show up like literally skip the exercise and to have the logo, AKA Jerry West say, Dan, thanks for wasting my time. <laughs> Tough. So, you know, those, those are, those are parts of the story that I think people need to know um, as, as you kind of build uh, your passions in your career um, on the entertainment side. Um, you know, I had the good fortune of, of, of working uh, with a number of folks that, that had some success in hip hop, uh, a couple of producers. I worked with a, 
an interesting group named Public Enemy and became very, very good friends with its uh, uh, leader and, and front person, Chuck D. Uh, we continue to be friends until this day. Um, and, you know, and, 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 and I had a really mixed experience of, of working in-house, of working for a boutique, you know, entertainment firm on 57th Street. By the way, I got fired from that job. So another great story uh, there. But, you know, you meet a lot of really, really interesting people, you know, whether it's it's Patti LaBelle or Art Garfunkel or, you know, or, you know, Lauren Hill. Um, you get you get some nice backstage passes. But at the end of the day, it, it, it was entertaining. Um, but it for me to have had the success that I would have wanted to have had, I would have really had to have compromised on my values. I would have had to have compromised on the dedication and commitment that I would have had had towards my family. Uh, and so, you know, it just really kind of wasn't destined to be. Un- unfortunately, I'm a little bit of a slow learner. So I did it for nine years. And so that so took at some what time. point, okay, you're, you're on that path. You've got maybe in the back of your mind some questions. You have some failures that you go through. You still, I guess from my vantage point, you don't envision that the next step would be to move back to Carlston and join the admissions office. So like there's a lot that has to happen to go from questioning the path to moving into higher ed admissions. So what's the story there? Did they recruit you again? I mean – how did that happen? Yeah, great question. Great question. Um, and, and and it is a more complex and complicated uh, answer. And I'll and I'll try and not uh, unthread. Because you know. yeah, we might have a couple of entertainment or sports attorneys listening. I mean, maybe like one. So you're really speaking to that person right now. You know, there are there are, there are a lot of uh, attorneys that do get into higher education. There's no question about it. I don't know how many from the entertainment field, but. Uh, Definitely a bunch that do get into education. Um, you know, over that nine-year period of time, I, I was doing a lot of self-reflection. Um, I was I, at that point in time, I had a network of friends and colleagues and uh, people that I could really ask them about their careers. Um, I was looking for different pathways uh, to other possibilities, but but I had stayed connected to Carleton uh, as an alumnus. And as a volunteer, um, I, I volunteered with the admissions office at Carleton. And so, you know, I was the guy that, that believe it or not, would make some time to go to a college fair in New York City. Um, I was the guy that would interview uh, uh, applicants coming out of New York City. And so I got exposed to that work. Um, and, and did it, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it just felt great. It did. Actually, when I, when I, I kind of took inventory of my life and I, and I was like, you know, what, what are the parts of my life that I really, really enjoy? For some reason, I enjoy talking about, I enjoyed uh, speaking with really, really bright students, you know, who had a world of opportunities there for them that were just so turned on to learn. Um, and I was turned on to tell them about this great place that, that, that I was connected to and how it might have been a possibility for their next step. So um, I enjoyed doing that. And, and uh, you know, here comes another, you know, mentor name, um, a gentleman by the name of Paul Thibodeau, who was the longstanding vice president and dean of admissions and financial aid at Carleton College. In fact, arrived there the year that I graduated, uh, excuse me, the year that I enrolled, 1987. 
uh, at Carleton and just retired last year. Wow. Um, so I, through that volunteer work, um, he became quite a mentor to me in talking about, hey, you know, by the way, there's some opportunities uh, for folks with your skill set in higher ed, and maybe you should consider them. And I spent literally about two years exploring some development jobs, some admissions jobs. And, you know, you eventually have to kind of um, throw your hat over the fence and chase it. And um, with a lot of, of uncertainty behind that decision, it, it was risky, but turned out to be the best decision that I ever made. So you, uh, you show up as the assistant dean of admissions in 2004 and spend uh, seven years at Carleton. And you did some time in admissions. You did have a quick pivot over into the development world. And then, um, and then ultimately it created opportunities for you to take leadership roles elsewhere. Anything stand out as being a, a favorite moment or something really memorable during your time back at Carleton? Oh, well, all of it, you know, um, the, it, the experience of going back uh, to your alma mater to work um, as an alumnus is, is, is really quite interesting, right? Because you have this kind of um, either jaded or idyllic viewpoint of, you know, perhaps you're like, oh, it's all about the money or, oh, it's, it was so pristine that it's perfect. And, and there's a risk when you go back as an alumnus because you actually get to see the sausage being made. And, yeah. One of the things that um, that happened for me and going to an incredible place like Carleton, um, I really saw um, what a calling working in higher education was. Every single day, the faculty and staff at that institution, they wake up and they do their jobs and they obsess about how much they care about the student experience, right? That is really the driver. And and that was what was missing for me in my law career. The, the, the driver in my law career was, is this deal going to make money? Is this talented person, do they have the potential to make money? And every day, the decisions, the work um, that the professionals um, that worked at Carleton um, was all about um, how do we ensure that everything that we do makes uh, the student experience, great. Um, and that, that really resonated deeply with me. I, I, I found a home. To be quite honest with you, you know, while my extended family, uh, not my immediate family, had incredible support from my wife to make that move. Um, uh, she was pregnant. But my wife is from Brooklyn, right? Um, uh, we had a daughter and she was pregnant. So it was the perfect time, right, to take a, let's say, six-figure cut and bring a Brooklynite to, to Northfield, Minnesota. Zero risk right? whatsoever, yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't plan that any better. You know, that, that, that was just spot on. Um, but I had incredible support. Um, and it, that first job as an assistant dean of admission literally was probably the most fun that I've ever had. I mean, can, can I until ask, recently. Did you... Uh... Did you ever, did any other kids from Amityville and Long Island end up making it out to Carleton during, during your time or, or, yeah. or nearby schools? I, 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 see, I, I see where you're going because um, you know I tried. Uh, and unfortunately, I, I, I remain the only kid to have gone to Carleton uh, from Amityville High School. That's, that's not a, a, a badge or a trophy that I 
that I'm proud of. We did get some other Long Island uh, students. Uh, in particular, the closest we got was a, a, a young woman from Copeg, Long Island, which is uh, a neighboring town. Um, but, you know, that, that uh, entry into higher ed was fantastic. Uh, getting both exposure, uh, Carlton was uh, uh, launching a, a, the public phase of a campaign. Uh, so being able to transition into being a development officer and to handle a traditional portfolio, the travel, uh, the cultivation, the frequent meetings, um, everything about that work was really fantastic. Uh, and then to come back uh, to the admission side and in, in a more senior leadership role uh, was was a perfect platform for the next moves that I made in my career. And I do think one of the dynamics that folks have to wrestle with in higher education is that oftentimes, I mean, it's great when you can start at an institution and, and work your way straight up the org chart, but that's pretty rare. And oftentimes folks have to move a fair amount geographically um, with young families to really pursue professional growth and opportunity. You did that and you joined Franklin and Marshall College uh, to really take a leadership role, Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid. Um, that had to be a, a, a tough decision. Maybe it wasn't, but it, it sort of comes with the territory in most situations if you want to really uh, pursue leadership opportunities in higher ed. You have to be opportunistic. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, most most folks that are doing good work in higher ed want to stay, right? <laughs> most leaders that, that are vice presidents and a part of a senior leadership team and enjoying their work, um, you know, they... Uh, Paul Thibodeau really blessed Carleton College with an incredible career. And I knew that he wasn't going anywhere uh, any time soon, as he should not have. Um, and so you do get into a position if you want to move up uh, the career path um, that you have to be able to go to a different institution. And that was an important test for me, right? Um, it was one thing to uh, recruit and raise funds for my alma mater, a place that I love so deeply. Um, and, and could I do that with equal passion uh, for institutions that I didn't go to? And um, I, I felt pretty confident that I could. Uh, the opportunity to join a senior leadership team uh, at Franklin and Marshall with, with an incredible and inspiring president in Dan Porterfield, um, who I had so much uh, uh, respect for um, and his mission to really change the conversation around uh, recruitment of students from uh, uh, socioeconomically challenged backgrounds. His philosophy that I broadly subscribe to that, you know, talent isn't, you know, resident in only certain zip codes and that it is actually much more evenly spread than economic opportunity. And to, to, to cheer in leading that mission as we built a talent initiative um, that strengthened that college and its student body. Um, it, it was really fantastic work to do. And um, I fell in love with Franklin and Marshall. I fell in love with that community, its students, its faculty, its alumni. And, and it, was, it was really telling to me that that was possible, right? That that shared mission of education, of transforming lives is being done by so many institutions. And it was an open door for me to work at, at, at several different places. Well, and, and I'm also curious, uh, I imagine when you're so uh, personally and professionally connected with the alma mater, uh, and also, you know, not in the 
kind of absolute leadership role, getting the opportunity to go somewhere else with a bit more of a clean slate, maybe more of a mandate to really take a swing um, had to be interesting. And I, and I think, you know, when I, I don't know as much about the enrollment world, uh, Jim Nondorf, the University of Chicago has been a, a longtime friend and, and mentor. Um, there are a handful of people, you know, he's on that list, you who have really had rapid, quantifiable uh, success stories that others have looked to. And just the punchline on it, you can give me more of the background, but there was, my understanding is a 45% increase in applications to Franklin and Marshall over a pretty uh, uh, compressed time period. And um, the institution had been around for a long time. I doubt that you launched a whole bunch of new programs overnight. Uh, so my sense is there had to be some sort of playbook that you either had wanted to run at Carleton, but maybe didn't have the full mandate uh, or that you developed somewhere along the way. But when did you feel like there was really an opportunity to have sort of a transformational impact, not just you, but your whole team, but what was kind of the, the playbook that you ran? Yeah, and and your 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 kind put me in the same sentence with 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 Jim Nondorf, who who is definitely an enrollment you know revolutionary at the University of Chicago. But I I would say that they're really, and I'm just making this up right now. They're kind of two things that 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 I may have had in common with him, um, which was a deep belief uh, in the power of data, uh, a deep belief. Uh, excuse me, I'm going to say three things. A deep belief in the fact that there are way, 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 way more students that would be interested in the experience of our institutions than have knowledge about who our institutions are. And it is our job, not their job, to educate them, right? Um, and, and then there's a real commitment to uh, the philosophy of why not, <laughs> You know, that we oftentimes, uh, you know, admire, admire um, things that we assume um, that always need to be. Well, we've always been like that. Well, we, we've never done well there. Or I don't think we've ever seen a student from X, Y, or Z. And, and, and I'm a fan of saying, why not? Why not? Why, why wouldn't we, you know, really pay more attention and, and then, you know, Carlton's a big part of that story, too, because one of the exciting things about Carlton uh, is it's one of those places, you know, it, it's got a little bit of Garrison Keeler, Lake Wobegon. They just do everything well, you know. And so I learned about these best practices, um, you know, from Paul Tipito and others about how do you just kind of really, you know, your X's and O's uh, in, in enrollment management and leadership are always keeping pace with the best practices and then seasoning that in with my own obsession with why not and data and really just kind of driving um, the message of what a great place Franklin Marshall is. And, and then to add in a component of how do we work with so many great community-based organizations that are working across the country to identify and to support brilliant young students um, that are underserved potentially in their community schools, but have a wealth, wealth of potential um, for, for great colleges and universities. And, and I think that's how we were able to transform our practices and transform the audience of students that knew about us and that, was, that would be excited about us. And, and, and that took some time. It took 
quite a bit of intentional hard work. Um, that was a team effort. It sure wasn't me. And that admissions team, I think, really did a stellar job um, of, of lining up all of those practices, uh, staying committed to spreading the word, um, and never, never really admiring a barrier, and just really kind of breaking I'm wondering if your commitment to why not also is the only common thread in your career path, because what you don't expect is for somebody to help lead an admissions transformation, enrollment transformation, achieve that kind of growth, and then join an advancement shop uh, as a leader at Colby College. So maybe this why not thread is the, the common, uh, common piece of the story. What leads you then now that you've got this playbook, the logical thing would be, let's go run it somewhere else. Um, but instead, you decided to go help spin up the largest capital campaign in liberal arts uh, history, if I'm not mistaken. Well, one yeah, I, I, um, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think uh, the, the, the philosophy of why not, uh, even though I just made it up, uh, maybe actually rings true. Um, I had the best admissions job in the country, uh, working with Dan Porterfield uh, in a community that understood um, um, the mission really, really well. Uh, things were going well. So I, I certainly wasn't interested in going anywhere else to take on, um, you know, an admissions job. Um, but what I was interested in becoming increasingly more interested in was the long-term possibility of becoming a college or university president. Um, I, I not only became, was there a uh, moment, like, was there somebody you met or, or a session you attended where you started thinking, Hey, I might be able to do that. Or, or I would love to do that. Yeah. You know, I, this is, this is a, a, a mentorship story and, um, I, I, I have to give all credit to Dan Porterfield who saw a lot of potential, uh, in me. And, and also started exposing me to different elements of, of higher education leadership, uh, expanding uh, the portfolio of things that I was invited to in terms of the leadership discussions and decision making. Um, and, and then just being at the senior leadership table, um, you know, at a great place uh, for me was inspiring. And to this day, I mean, that's the work that I love most is when you see all of those leaders come together and we can play in each other's pools, right? And we can help each other out. That's, that's where, you know, my thirst to learn was really, really turned on. Um, you know, those weekly meetings that uh, if, you're, if you really only care about your lane, I would imagine those weekly meetings can be, you know, tough, right? Two or three hours um, really focused on a lot of things that, that you might think of as not yours. Hmm. From day one, I felt like they were all mine, right? And, and I was always listening to how can I help that? How can I be of assistance? Or what can I learn there? And then, you know, just working with Dan Porterfield was, was an inspirational thing for me to think of the possibility of, of uh, the ways that I could shape an institution. So um, it started pretty early on. And, and you know, I wasn't going to... Uh, take a sabbatical and, and research a number of things and write a book and then come back and teach. So I, I knew that I was going to have to put together a non-traditional portfolio. So um, when the opportunity uh, came and I, I, I had conversations with another absolute visionary president in David Green, um, and he knew exactly, you know, this David's a guy that understands people 
uh, in you know the most interesting ways and gets uh, to the core of what motivates folks really, really quickly. He understood my motivations and said, you know, candidly, um, we can get you on the path to being competitive for uh, a great presidency one day. And the path is to mastering this other side of the revenue house, um, which was to be a chief development officer. And, and, and I knew that that made sense. And he knew that that made sense. Um, and so it was a really difficult uh, decision because I loved the work and I loved the community and I loved my boss at Franklin and Marshall. But I felt really, you know, uh, compelled to take that leap, uh, to say why not, um, and to, uh, you know, jump in with, with both feet into leading uh, uh, an exciting shop at an exciting time with a leader that I knew was going to really fight for the resources that we need to do big things uh, and that who was going to be a champion for uh, fundraising, alumni engagement, and, uh, you know, using that as a, as a vehicle uh, to change and really uh, improve the slope of a fantastic institution. And so you made the move to Waterville, Maine, another big move. The family is, is thrilled to go to Waterville. I, 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 you know, they're just rolling with the changes. Um, and you, you launch one of the, the most well-branded, I think, uh, capital campaigns that I've been a part of or that I've been exposed to, Dare Northward. Uh, I love that uh, from the time that you all announced it. And I also will say, you have been fairly public on platforms like LinkedIn and Twitter, um, which I think is still not that common for development professionals, advancement leaders. Um, and, and I'm curious if there was a moment where you felt like not only kind of the institutional branding and the broad communications, but that you, Dan, were going to build your own kind of social and professional identity and put yourself out there a little bit on some of those social platforms that can be scary. Yeah, you know, I, I, there, there, there are several things that, you know, kind of make me tick. And uh, one of them is technology and communications. And um, I've been an early adopter for, you know, different uh, social media community uh, uh, platforms um, since their release. Um, and, and I feel like I, I require a lot of my teammates and, uh, uh, and, and, and how everyone becomes a storyteller. And I feel like I have to model that behavior. Um, I, luckily I enjoy it. I don't, I really don't do it grudgingly. Um, how can I use whatever role that I'm in? Uh, and it, it might be a small audience. Um, but the power of social media is that, Hey, if it, if it hits a nerve and resonates with a number of people, it gets syndicated, right? It, it has really an opportunity for some viral growth. And, and it's been fun to see which of those stories, you know, that, that I champion uh, have that opportunity. Um, but it's, it's impossible for me to really, um, in my opinion, uh, really drive someone else towards that work if I don't embrace it myself. And, and it, you know, there are risks with that. Um, luckily, uh, I don't think that I've really stubbed my toe on anything. And, and, um, you know, I understand what my channel is and what it's about and what the stories are that I should be talking about. Um, and, and it's tough to thread that needle um, where you don't seem like a shill, right? 
purely for marketing reasons, but there's some authenticity and some insight into who is the person that is telling those stories. And, and I, I wish I was better. I, was, I wish I was as good as you are at doing that, you know, um, but, but, but I love learning. I love getting better at that type of work. And, and it's been a part of, uh, of the toolkit that I, I continue to use. Well, and look, I think it does compound over time. Like, I'm not sure that if you weren't that public, that when we were thinking about who would be great guests for this podcast, that your name would have immediately come to mind. So I think there is something where these little things do compound and maybe someday, uh, a year from now, somebody will Google your name, come across this podcast, listen to it and apply for a job at Queens that they otherwise might not have applied for. And so it's, it's sort of not just going to be an overnight thing, which is where I feel like it, it, you know, inertia is powerful. And if you're not moving, um, it's hard to start, but as you start to just get comfortable with it, and that's been hard for me too. I mean, I'm like, you know, we, we've learned a lot over the last 10 years of, of starting this company, but there's definitely been these moments of like, who am I to say how somebody should be doing advancement? You know, I haven't necessarily done that work or, or, you know, how do I sort of balance that humility with also wanting to have a point of view and being willing to, you know, to put forth new ideas. And so I, I, I commend you um, on, on frankly giving me and others a window into your world at Colby and, and now in your current role at Queens. Um, and, and I actually wonder, even when you think about building the quote unquote portfolio as a leader today, does that matter to whoever the selection committee was to uh, ultimately make the offer for you to join Queens as president? That kind of thing probably matters to them as well. Like, is this guy going to be accessible and available to our community through these new digital mediums. Maybe it doesn't matter that much, but I'm curious if, if it's come up at all. I think it does. I mean, I, I think it does matter. And, and clearly um, the search for, for uh, the Queens president um, was, was incredibly professionally done. Uh, it was a fantastic search committee. It was, you know, staffed by a national, you know, leader in presidential searches. So they knew what I was doing out there. I don't think we had a very intentional conversation about that, um, but what they could feel was that um, college presidents are college presidents 24 hours a day. And I, it's interesting. I, I feel I, sometimes I, it, that's, it's, it's, it's helpful for me now as a college president, but I feel like I've always been wired like that, right? <laughs> I, I, I um, that has been a part of my personality and and, you know, my wife kind of uh, uh, knew this about me way back when. We made the decision 16 years ago to get into higher education and to leave New York. Um, I was commuting into New York City from Montclair, New Jersey, taking a train. It was, you know, an hour commute or so back and forth. And when we moved to Northfield, um, I, I had an assumption that we would live in the Twin Cities because I've got this urbanite, you know, wife and I would continue to do the commuting. And she said, heck no. Um, I know you, you, you know, you think it was because you were a lawyer that you worked forever and worked hard. It's because you like to work. You're a workaholic and we're going to, we're going to live close. We're going to live in Northfield. And at every position that I've had, uh, whether it was Carlton, F&M, now Queens, I'm always less than a five minute commute from home. So, you know, if, if, if I'm putting in a 12 hour day, if I'm there from eight to eight, I get home at eight or five, Right which gives me the opportunity to 
you know, be fully engaged with my second obsession, which is my family, right? Um, if we had a commute in there, um, that, that just wouldn't work. So I, I've always been wired to kind of carry, um, to be mission-centered, uh, to, I, I have a hard time turning off, um, you know, the, the things that I'm passionate about. Um, and I think part of that uh, uh, openness towards communicating uh, about the mission, about my passions and social media relate to that. And, and, and so, yes, maybe that does, people can see through that. They can see, you know, hopefully the search committee saw that oh, this is a guy that will, will really embody this role and not run from it, right? That will enjoy the aspects of taking that on, yeah. you know, um, in the 24-hour type of role that it is. I love it. I, I have to ask, I, I do wonder, so um, when you're in the Dare Northward campaign in particular, one of the things that fascinates me about uh, the two sides of the revenue house, as you as you described it, is I love learning from enrollment leaders because the rapid pace in enrollment is is unparalleled. Uh, you go back to zero uh, at the end of each cycle, and you've got really this compressed time period, which is why I do feel like there has been a lot of innovation around data in the enrollment space. Yesterday, I interviewed for the podcast, Matthew Lambert, who's the Vice President for University Advancement at William & Mary. And he talked about how on the advancement side, they think about creating 80-year relationships. So like you might get eight months on the enrollment side of things. You literally have 80 years on the advancement side of the house. Um, and and, and you, you jumped to that side in leading the, the campaign uh, at Colby. And I'm just curious along the way, like, was the pace different or how do you feel about that eight month cycle versus 80 year cycle? And then the other thing I want to ask is I would imagine the background is an entertainment lawyer where you're dealing with high profile, high net worth people negotiating complex transactions was probably pretty useful when, when you started working on some of those gift agreements. Is that fair? Um. Maybe not. You know, I, I, I've always, so part of, I think what that actually is, is less the facility of being with high net worth folks. Um, I, I enjoy being with, with creative people and learning about them. And at its core, that's what great development work is, is how much do you enjoy about learning about what makes people tick, what makes them excited, what are their values, you know, what do they want to get done in the world? Um, and then to connect those with the mission of your institution. I love that work. I love, love people. And I love learn. I lo love hearing their stories. Um, you know, you, you won't be able to tell on this podcast because I'm talking a lot, but I actually love to listen. I just love to listen closely. Um, and, and candidly, in, in development work, you know, the, the less you're talking and the more they're listening, the more they're giving you the keys you know, to their kingdom in many ways. And so um, that was also something that, that, that um, I think was helpful in working uh, in the entertainment business, but, you know, not, not as much as, you know, might, you might, you might think. Um, I, I, that, that being said, I, maybe if you can kind of refresh me on the first part of, 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 of the question. Um, the pace, the eight month enrollment kind of cycle you really get versus the 80 years and, and does yeah. that result in a different approach to data and digital media, for example, on the enrollment side where you really have no choice 
versus advancement, I think that's one of the areas that we've always kind of, we've been championing, but at the end of the day, if, if the top two or 3% of your supporters are contributing 90% of the revenue, do you really need a great Facebook strategy to do that? Probably not because those are 80 year relationships or 50 year relationships. But for that middle of the pyramid or bottom of the pyramid, it has always felt to us like that's where advancement could learn a lot from the enrollment world. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, I, I would say that, yes, the very data was important to both roles. Um, uh, and, and one of the things that, that, that uh, I'm excited about that's helped me uh, to execute at both chief enrollment and chief advancement officer roles is, is that I've, I've had a kind of partner in crime uh, in, in that work at both places, right? So, and, and he continues to, to, to be with me uh, currently as our vice president for strategic planning. Um, for, <clears throat> and, and, and that would be a gentleman by the name of, of, of Rich Majerus, um, who was- And I would just say, if you're listening and you're interested in data, either for advancement enrollment in general, Google Rich, he's done a really nice job uh, putting forth a lot of his learnings very openly and publicly. Uh, we've learned a lot from him uh, at Evertrue, and, and I'm glad that you gave him a shout out. Yeah, no, 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 my, my pleasure, because he's, he's a big part of uh, my success uh, and the stories that we've been able to you know, create together. You know, in, in, in admissions, um, that cyclical nature uh, really puts, I think, everyone on a balanced playing field and the folks that can really take advantage of, of, of data uh, to make an impact uh, in the pipeline in, in literally, you know, two or three year kind of windows um, have the, the best opportunities. And, you know, segmentation is getting to be a, a lot more possible. Um, but the, the richness of the data that you can get uh, in advancement is so much stronger. And it is because of the, 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 the length of connection that these folks have uh, uh, to the institution. It does have to do with what's available publicly um, to learn more about individuals. Um, but, I, but I would also say is that I, I didn't have the luxury and I didn't want to work at a, at a place where the focus was only on the top 2%. And, and, and that's not the out that David Green gave our advancement team. We, we had to be great at everything. You know, we, we had to have uh, incredible success uh, in building uh, up our, our annual fundraising, uh, small donations, uh, working with millennial and post-millennial generations, and uh, to have incredible success at those mid-tier early leadership gifts, and uh, to really be building that top 2% of the pyramid. Um, and we were able to do that, and we held ourselves to that standard of excellence, literally, uh, because that was the requirement. That's what we owed the institution, and that's what we thought the Dare Northward campaign could be about, because Dare Northward to Colby is about everyone pursuing, you know, their best selves. Um, and that, that really influenced everything um, that, that we did. But one thing that I, I, I would highlight and in between the two jobs um, Admissions work, there's a, there, it's, it's an incredibly pressure-filled job, especially if you're at a, a revenue, uh, a tuition revenue dominant institution. Um, you know, bringing in that class, you know, ensuring that it's heading in the right trajectory and it has the right financial elements to it is a tough, tough job. But it's forgiving. The, the, here's where it's forgiving. Once you do that, next year you get kind of a clean slate, yeah. right? Yeah. The challenge in advancement uh, is... 
you're, you are talking about 20, 40, 60 year relationships. And whether you caused a problem in that relationship or not, you own it. Right. Right. And so you are inheriting folks who have had a 20 year, 40 year relationship with an institution. And and you know what? Data is not always going to be the answer to getting you past that. Building relationships, showing how much you authentically care about those individuals and care about the things that are passionate uh, to them. Really telling the story about how the core values of an institution remain the same even as the tactics and some of the audience and the student body has evolved um, is really tough work, right? Um, there, there aren't particularly great algorithms um, that do that work. And it takes people to do that. It takes right. people that are passionate about that work to get that done. Well, let's talk about now in your presidential role, you're about nine months in. And is that it? I, I believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> I, I double check the math. It's nine months and you've got to build relationships in just a normal context with faculty, with current students, with um, prospective students, with parents, with alumni, not that you're going to build individual relationships with everyone, but you and your, your team uh, has to manage that. And even in a normal um, order of business, that would be, I think, somewhat uh, overwhelming. You're, you're, uh, I'm sure enjoying it, um, but at the same time, we are now in the midst of uh, this COVID-19 coronavirus situation where everything has sort of all plans have been thrown out the window, and within a, uh, you know, 10 or 20 day period, we've probably forced 10 or 20 years of change into the higher ed sector. You've had to help, uh, first and foremost, take care of your students take care of your, your employees at the university, spin up online education. And so when you talk about all leaders coming together and, and not having people just stay in their lane, I would imagine this has been a really uh, stressful, but perhaps unifying period. Uh, and, and I'd love just a window into what it's like trying to navigate that where you don't necessarily have a mentor you can turn to for advice about how they handled this. I mean, you and I think anybody in leadership position right now, you're becoming the leaders that others are going to be asking about this period for the rest of time, frankly. So how, how have you navigated that? How is your team holding up? Uh, probably too early to say, have you learned any lessons, but what stands out? Yeah, you know, and, and, and um, uh, I appreciate um, the moment that we're in. And, you know, Brent, you, you lead a team too. Uh, and, and I, you know, my thoughts are with you as, as you lead for, for your team, um, as you have to virtualize things and have to, you have to ensure that there's a continuing business, um, that puts food on the table for, for the families and that you take care of your clients, um, all the while really taking care of your own family. And, and, and I come to this moment realizing that that's, all of our challenge right now. It's, 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 we all, we all are in this moment, um, not only as professionals, but as human beings. Um, and so, you know, a part of my day-to-day -day experience is worrying clearly about the Queens community of faculty, staff, and students, but it's worrying about my aging parents. It's worrying about my mom that's in a nursing home that can't be visited right now, you know, in New Jersey. Uh, all of these things are influencing us day-to-day. -day. And so, 
It, it is now more than ever that we have to pull together as people that care about each other as professionals, uh, that give us the space uh, to listen uh, and to support each other, not only in our work, but to be responsive to their to the moments of their personal needs. Um, the last three weeks have, have, have just been unprecedented. Uh, we have been uh, uh, at Queens trying to be uh, agile, trying to be one step somewhat ahead of the curve of this evolving challenge and crisis and pandemic. Um, I am so, so, so happy to be here in the Queens community, a community that, that I fell in love with from afar. And now that I've been here for nine months, I know why. Um, it's a community that really cares about each other. They care about its people. And they've been caring about me and my experience and the experience of my senior leadership team. I love those, uh, you know, as I said earlier, in, in, when times were, were normal, I, I, I loved, you know, the senior leadership team meeting, right? I love spending that three hours together and learning what was going on across campus. And you know what? Almost every day is another crisis senior leadership team meeting to address myriad concerns, questions, policy changes, um, and to, you know, do uh, uh, the type of risk mitigation uh, and decision-making that's required by these times. And I've got a great senior leadership team. Um, we have experts in, in what they do. Um, you know, we always are checking our egos at the door and we come in with an open mind to uh, different advice and suggestions and we care about each other. Um, you know, we made a joke where we're, we're all, you know, doing the Brady Bunch here and whatever, whatever platform, Zoom, Ring Central, we're a Ring Central place. Um, and the best times of my day when I'm not worried about um, the world, um, when I'm not worried about my family, when I'm not worried about our students, is the time when we're doing the work, when we're literally spending that time together making decisions. Uh, and then, you know, we kind of got to get into our own silos and islands to execute on those decisions. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been a real uh, a study. And, 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 and I, you know, I, I still have mentors, right? I'm still in communication with Dan Porterfield. I'm still in communication with David Green. And I'm thankful every day for the leadership that they modeled and that I learned at their leadership tables. Um, and had I not had those experiences, um, boy, I, I would not be as good of a leader for Queens right now. I just wouldn't be as prepared as I think we are as a leadership team to handle us in the best ways that, that we can. I, I want to ask, I mean, one of the great things about higher education broadly is how uh, uh, collaborative it is. And you've, you've mentioned many good mentors, I think, even in my situation. And I appreciate your, your comments about you know, my company. I mean, there are other CEOs in, in Boston tech companies that I'm texting back and forth with constantly because nobody has the right answer. And so just getting, you know, different perspectives can help shape, you know, even if it ends up being your gut feel. Um, are college presidents, I mean, you are you all texting each other all the time? I mean, is that kind of the community you have or, or is it a tighter group of, of mentors? I mean, who, who, are, who are the crew that you're in touch with right now as you all try to navigate some really big decisions with very incomplete information. Yeah, no, I, I think that there's, there's quite a bit of communication going on. Um, and, and I think college presidents are paying more attention to that cross communication uh, than they typically usually pay attention to it. 
Um, that that is informal with the relationships that you 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 make in in the surrounding community. I, I, I you know I'm I'm excited to communicate with with Clay Armbruster at Johnson C Smith. Um, you know, with with my peers at UNC Charlotte, at Davidson, Carol Quillen, uh, Phil Dubois. Um, uh, that extends out, you know, across the country to uh, my network of folks who, um, you know, I guess as we age, we, we, we've kind of moved up the ladder. But but also importantly, um, the member, you know, the, the the CICs, the NCICUs, um, you know. I, I, I honestly didn't, uh, you know, read every single email from those organizations every morning. Now I do. You know, now the data that we're sharing together um, across our conference, as the South Atlantic Conference has a weekly call of its presidents to really share experiences and best practices. So there's there's a great great moment of collaboration and a spirit of of, of true sharing of experience. Of, of not seeing us so much as competitors in this moment, but as folks that are taking on a common front and a common enemy, which is this pandemic. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's horrible that we've been forced into this posture, but it's actually really beautiful about the people that, that are stepping up in ways to help each other to make our community stronger. Dan, I can't thank you enough in the midst of all of that for, for taking time with us. One closing thought I want to be sensitive of time is uh, our audience are primarily advancement professionals. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say most of whom have not dreamed of becoming a college president. But my question for you is, should more advancement leaders think about that as a why not aspirational path? And if so, what advice would you give them as they think about building their own portfolio of work? I, I definitely think that uh, more advancement professionals um, that um, have a passion for leadership, that truly love their institutions and not necessarily their institutions, that, that love the industry of higher education and are, and are really fixated on learning more about our industry. Um, I, I, I think uh, uh, development professionals bring a skill set that is becoming increasingly more important uh, and more essential to a successful college presidency. Um, there is no question that on the other side of this pandemic, uh, an industry that was starved for resources is going to be more starved for resources. Um, so I, I would be encouraging for folks that, that, that see higher education um, as, as a field um, that is really so important to the future of our world. Um, and if you, you know, want to build a portfolio that, that leads with the fundamentals of advancement and development, I think you have you know, every right to, to aspire towards that future career. Um, the steps that you need to take you know, are gonna be very, very individual. It depends on you know, where you come from. It depends on what your professional experiences have been. I do think it's key for you to get to that senior leadership table. Um, and if you have a deep, deep experience in advancement, learning another lane, I think, makes a lot of sense. How many hats can you wear, right? How can you expand your portfolio to demonstrate, you know, some uh, mastery of a broader, broader slice of the pie of institutional leadership? But I, I would be very, very encouraging for folks that, that love um, the, the work of advancement, the work of connecting 
people that believe in higher education to the mission of an institution. Um, they have a world of potential as a college president. Dan, this has been incredibly inspiring for me, and I know it will be for our audience as well. Thank you for giving us a window into your journey from St. Uh, Croix to Charlotte, and I wish you the absolute best in navigating these turbulent times, and I appreciate your willingness to share. Um, thank you, best wishes, and, and take care. Thank you, Brent. You take care of your family and your team there, and we will be stronger on the other side of this. Thank you. 